Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulette Matthews & Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to The Empowered Investor. My name is Keith Matthews, and I'm joined by my co-host, Marcelo Tavuata. Marcelo, how are you? I'm doing extremely well, all suited up today. We have three prospects today in the company, so it's an exciting day, and we're doing this great podcast, which is going to be informative. I think it's a lot of good stuff to talk about. Yeah, today's podcast is a mid-year review, specifically investments and what we're seeing in portfolios and what we're seeing in asset classes. So Marcelo, let's go back in time. Let's go back six months ago, or maybe even to the fourth quarter of last year. What are some of the narratives that were bouncing around in the media, in the press, in sort of financial journals? What were people talking about? As you know, 2022 was a challenging year for a lot of things. And there was a big drawdown in markets, a lot of economic turmoil, a lot of talk about what was going to happen in 2023. So we've identified four themes so to speak. So the first one we heard a lot about was we are heading for a tough recession in 2023. I think that hasn't panned out yet. There was a lot of talk about that. I think the Wall Street Journal was predicting a 50% chance of going into a recession. Big economists like Larry Summers were talking about us getting into a recession. I think he was all over the news. I think he said it is absolutely inevitable that we have a recession in early 23. So you're right. So why are we doing this? We're looking at some of the previous narratives and we want to see how things have evolved actually in the last six months. So that was a big discussion point in the media and within economists. What were some of the other things that people were talking about in terms of what was going to happen or what were they worried about? So obviously the war in Ukraine and people were expecting European economies to struggle depending on the winter and how bad it was going to be the energy situation that was going to spread across European markets. That didn't pan out. High inflation here to stay. That was another of the themes that we heard a lot about in 2022 and it hasn't pan out yet. I mean, we're going to talk about the inflation numbers, but we have seen a massive trend downward in inflation. We're still not where we want to be, but it was a big topic. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion, especially amongst Main Street, that individuals, it's the first time they'd seen inflation and they were seeing it everywhere. Everything they did, they saw higher prices. And there was a worry that this is going to stick around for a lot longer than ever thought. And the last one was hard not to think about. I mean, to put a timestamp on this, we're July 13th, the central bank in Canada rates again yesterday. So now the overnight rate is at 5%. So a lot of the predictions in 2022 were those high interests will absolutely crush the economy in 2023. Now, it hasn't happened yet. And I think it relates to the first point that we talked about that we're expecting it to go into a recession because of those high interest rates and they're trying to slow down the economy. But it is a new reality for a lot of people that we have high interest rates and we'll definitely get into that, right? Absolutely. What I think we're raising here is these were the big concerns and worries in the second half of last year, 2022. And actually, the economy has been extremely resilient and actually, none of these things have transpired as of yet. And the irony is even just in yesterday's Bank of Canada report, they're predicting still no recession and positive, small, but still positive growth in GDP. And now what are the implications here from an investment perspective? If you would have 
being more on the agitated side and making major portfolio moves six months ago, trying to be super defensive, you would have missed out on what has turned out to be a pretty reasonable first half of the year. So let's slide into returns, Marcelo. How have returns looked from Jan 1st to June 30th? Let's go over fixed income, general equity returns, and then we'll add global REITs in there. Yeah. So the Canadian bonds are up 2.5%. Canadian stocks are up 5.7%. US stocks are leading the way at 14.3%. We have international stocks at 9.2% up. Emerging market stocks at 2.6% up. And we have global REITs essentially flat. Yeah. The number that really, I think, surprised, well, surprises me, but surprises a lot of individuals is how Europe can be up so much. In fact, if you go back to September of last year, European stocks are probably one of the best performing stocks in the last nine months. And you would have never thought that would be the case, given all of the difficulties that are going on and the devastating war in Ukraine. You just wouldn't think. It hasn't necessarily been sort of a smooth trajectory. We went up for the first few months, January, February, March, and then I believe we kind of sagged down for a month or two. And then we've had a big push forward in the last two months. Let's unpack some of these returns a little bit. Let's start with general portfolios, and then we'll migrate into more specific sub-asset classes. So generally speaking, if you're in a 50-50 portfolio or 60-40 portfolio, what are the kind of returns that you might likely see if you had good diversification in Canada, US, international? Portfolios at 50-50 came in at 4.5%. You look at a 65-35, so that's closer to the 60-40 you were talking about, that it was up 52 Now, if you go to the other extreme, which is 100% equities, our equity portfolio was up 6.9%. So hovering around that. Yeah. And we'll talk about these returns relative to other returns as we go through the show. Our portfolios are tilted, of course, to value companies and they include small company stocks. But essentially what we're seeing here in the first half of the year are positive returns, positive returns across most asset classes, fixed income and stocks around the world with the United States and Europe leading the way. So let's go into sub-asset class. We'll start with the U.S., because it's the biggest market in the world. And there's some fascinating things going on in that stock market. And then we'll have some general comments for more global stocks. So what's going on within the U.S. stock market? Yeah. So within the U.S., it's clear that the big tech companies related to AI, so you would call the Facebooks, the Amazon, the Microsofts, the NVIDIAs, they are absolutely crushing the market right now. So when you look at within the U.S. market, growth companies are doing better than value. Small cap companies, it's up, but not as high as a large cap company. So I remember when somebody in the office came to me and said, look, let's just use chat GDP to, is it GDP or? Chat GPT, yeah. GPT. See, I still can't even pronounce it right. (laughs) Chat GPT. And I'm like, what the hell? This is like January. And I think it was launched in November. And we're like, what is that? And then all of a sudden you fast forward the last six months and everybody's talking about AI and what AI can possibly do to change the world, change the way how we work. A little side tangent, my sister-in-law wrote a poem for my brother-in-law and shared it with 10 people in an email. She sends this poem out and the verse, it was beautiful. And we sat back and I said, oh my God, I didn't spend five hours. I feel guilty like, because it looked like she would have spent an entire day. And I'm sitting back saying, you are so gifted. This is incredible. And an hour after she released it, she acknowledged that she got the help of chat GPT. And afterwards, I said, what exactly did you do? She said, I loaded up 10 words, 
I told the person that age, and that's it. It spat out this absolutely beautiful poem. And I could never think that this was possible. So this is what everybody's excited about. That example is perfect because I think that's exactly what artificial intelligence has done. And this type of things have captured the people's imagination now. And when you think about the investors at large, everybody's buying into this. So it's like we're back into this idea that they're going to take over the future. It reminds me a little bit. I'm not saying it will happen the same way, but it reminds me a little bit of the dot-com crisis where people were completely captivated by the idea of the internet and just changing the future and changing the way we live and changing the way we work and the way we relate to people. So I think we're seeing that theme right now with the AI companies and artificial intelligence at large. I think it's capturing people's imagination. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we go out 10 years from now and look back, see who the actual winners are. Is it the manufacturers of this software or is it the live companies? Is it small companies, medium companies? Is it companies around the world that will benefit by introducing this by making themselves more productive? So it's a fascinating evolution. It's like eight months old, but it is affecting, what is it, five to 10 companies? What are those companies when we looked at attribution of the S&P 500 and we boiled down, you've got some stats up until May 31st. I think it was like five companies were producing 80% of the returns of the S&P 500. If you look at the S&P 500, the top five companies right now, as of May 31st, was Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Meta, and Amazon. So if you look at year to date, so from January 1st to May 31st, those five companies returned 56.2%. When you look at the index of the S&P 500 as a whole, it returned 8.9%. So most of the return came from those five stocks. If we push down that to, let's say, the top 20 stocks, we have data on the top 20 stocks in the S&P 500 and what the return was up until May 31st, that was 705 when you look at the total return of the S&P 500, it was 7.55. So 90% or so of the returns came from the top 20 companies. And then when you actually look at the top five companies, it produced in that same report, five out of the 7%. So five companies produced 80% of the return of the S&P 500. Now, when I look at that, part of me says, what's well, an interesting observation. I also know that the other 490 or 480 that have not appreciated that much are still, and we know this, are at more reasonable valuations. So I actually really like the fact that in our case, our portfolios are broadly diversified and have tilts towards these areas that aren't necessarily pushing forward as fast as some of these AI companies, because we know that the valuations are better and that that will produce stronger returns long-term. Yeah. And make no mistake, I mean, our portfolios do have those stocks in the portfolio. They just won't have an overweight or a big quantity to drive those type of returns. But we do have those companies still in the portfolio, right? Absolutely. So when we look at things back in the US, US small value, you're looking at returns that are close to zero. But these are companies that areas of the market have a great long-term return. So they're having a bit of a pause right now. And that bodes well for the future of those stocks and bodes well for expected returns. Is all technology booming right now, Marcelo? Remember, we spoke about this in the last quarter and in the late 2022 when a lot of these tech companies got crushed. Have those crushed technologies, the arcs of this world that have diversified, the zooms of this world, have they come back to anything close to where they were before? No. I mean, the rallying technology is being driven by AI, artificial intelligence, 
and it hasn't panned out for the other companies. You look at Zoom, Peloton, Arc, which is a bundle of all this type of securities. They're not even close to what the peak was in 2020, 2021. So those investors that were chasing those securities, unfortunately, aren't seeing the return of their capital and might likely never see the return of their capital, which bodes well back to broadly diversified securities. So that's a little bit about the US market, Marcelo. What's going on thematically around the world, whether it's Canada, whether it's maybe it's international? What are some of the themes that we're seeing inside of asset class returns right now? The theme remains the same. So you look at Canada, international emerging, you see the same theme. So growth is doing better than value, maybe not as extreme as in the US. And small cap is still up, but not as good as large cap. So you're seeing that difference in both of them. But again, it boils down to valuations. It boils down to how much are you paying for that extra level of growth or revenue. And yeah, you see it across the themes, right? So that's just the thing with this type of factors or when you're trying to look at growth versus value, small cap versus large, just because the factors or small cap has done better than large cap over the long term, it doesn't mean it's going to happen every year, right? It's just, it goes through cycles. Sure. And the last growth was doing better than value from 15, 16 till about 20, 21, and then value did better for two or three years. And now it's the year of growth again. However, when economies open up, like if we don't go into recessions and we don't tank, it bodes well for all asset classes, fixed income as well as equities. And even if we do hit a recession, it just means a readjustment of pricing, which is a great time to be buying into equities. Let's talk a little bit about interest rates and inflation, and then we're going to wrap up and talk about how we think investors should position portfolios for the long term. So Marcelo, where's Prime today? So at 7.2. 7.2. We've got a chart up on the screen right in front of us right now. We're looking at 21 years versus of prime rate versus Bank of Canada target and overnight rate. And we're right back to where we were in 2001. And I'm going to tell you, an entire generation of either investors or homeowners have never seen rates as high as this. So there's a few implications here. I mean, first of all, I think as we alluded to at the beginning, everybody thought that these higher interest rates would crush the economy. It hasn't happened yet. But when you speak to your friends and people you know, and I guess it almost appears that we're back to these days that I am very familiar with as an individual who's in my late 50s. And what I'm speaking to is this concept of people now all of a sudden realizing how expensive debt is. If you're a borrower, it's expensive. Whether you're borrowing for a house in a mortgage, whether you're borrowing for a car, whether you're borrowing interest on a line of credit, debt is expensive. And this is the first time people have seen this in 20 years. And this last increase that's come through has just come through massively. It's almost like a rocket ship going up to moon here. And the flip side to that would be if you're an investor, finally, finally, you feel like you're getting a rate of return. Like I was golfing yesterday and a bunch of guys that were my age were joking saying, I guess I should move everything to GICs now because I can get 6%. Well, we haven't seen that in 20 years. Obviously, they're not going to do that. They were chuckling as they went through. But finally, the tide has shifted so that the investor is going to get a decent rate of return, but the borrower, it's going to be hard. So what are your thoughts on that and sort of how things stand? I think it's tough. I mean, you're seeing it in people my generation who maybe took variable rates. I'm seeing it in people who maybe took out equity from a property to buy another one on variable rates. I'm seeing the stress. People who bought cars, they have to finance that at 7 8% instead of 1% or 2%. 
it makes a difference on your budget. And I think I'm starting to see in my circle, at least, people acting with more caution. Now, you will still see people who are acting reckless. I guess that's part of life. But I am seeing people now being more careful and saying, you know what, maybe I'll hold on to that project. Maybe I won't take that trip. Maybe I'll start eating at home a bit more. I know myself, just to give you a personal example, I have to renew my mortgage next year. And it's going to be a quite a shock because I bought my house in 2019. We were still at lower interest rates. Now, of course, I do this for a living. I have planned for this and I have starting to look at it, but it is definitely changing my behaviors. I sit down with my wife and we have a finance conversation and we're talking about, okay, come next year, you know, we have to renew our mortgage payments are probably going to go up $500, $600. So how do we adjust for that? It's definitely changing the way people behave and it has implications. But you were fortunate enough that you bought your property in 2019 yes. before the big jump, right? Yes. So I'd sit back and say, okay, your property probably went up 40%. Now there's a payment that has to occur. So the individuals that are really going to be squeezed are people that bought properties and levered themselves in 2021, 2022, have super low interest rates. And this is what economists are concerned about. The individuals that have to renew rates, because my understanding after reading some articles that came out in the Global Mail yesterday were that only one third of homeowners have had to readjust their mortgages so far. Well, the other thing that banks are doing, right, is if you have a variable, I don't want to get into a rabbit hole, but the variable rates, they're pushing the amortization so people don't have to increase their payments. So they're telling people, you keep your payment, you'll just pay more interest and we'll adjust the amortization. But at some point, they can't do that anymore. And the payment does shoot up. And that's going to be a shock. Sure. So I think there's a little bit more adjustment coming probably a year or two of adjustments for individuals who indebted themselves and there's going to be a new set of interest rates that will be introduced and that is going to be an adjustment. Savings rates also went from very low 2%. Individuals saving, personal saving rates went from 2% and then during the pandemic went up to as high as 9 and 10%. But the stats show that it's right back down to 2%. Well, you're seeing delinquency rates go up in debt and you're seeing credit card usage going up. So people are going to get squeezed. It's going to be interesting how it plays out. We've always spoke about being prudent, doing a variety of what we call prudent financial planning concepts. Don't put yourself into too much debt. Be reasonable. But I will say that this time frame, when I look at the historical numbers, is reminding me of the old days a little bit. And the old days being the person who had the cash who could invest so for our clients, and we're in an investment show here, this is a good time to be a bondholder. This is a good time to own assets and not such a great time to be indebted, especially with high levels of debt. So let's now move to how do we always recommend individuals go forward with portfolios? Where are we at now? Let's spend a couple of minutes and do a wrap up. General themes here, Marcel, equities. We always talk about international equities. Make sure you're diversified. Canada, US, international. Anything changing in that? Concept. No, no, I think it was just reassuring that we saw a report from Vanguard suggesting that there's always been a problem in Canada that we have this thing called the home bias, which is like people invest mostly in Canadian stocks. So if you look at Canada, the percentage of people who invest in the stock market, about 52% of those people invest in Canadian markets. So if you have a portfolio, the average Canadian is allocating 52% of his stock allocation into Canadian markets just because of that home bias idea of familiarity. Those are the stocks that I know and I'm going to buy. But 
So what you're saying is they put 52% of their money in the Canadian stock market. But of course, we know the Canadian stock market only represents 3 4% of the global stock market. So why would you overweight? Yeah, there's problems with that. You have overweight to energy and banks and things like that, maybe for another discussion. But the Vanguard report says that Canadians should allocate 30% of their stock allocation to Canada and the rest to international markets, including the US, Europe, and emerging markets. So that was validating. That's what we do. We believe in broad diversification, a third, a third, a third in each of the markets, and just rebalance that. And we've been doing that for 20 plus years. So it's kind of nice to see that Vanguard is making that as a recommendation. Our clients have experienced that for a long time. I remember one of the things about these diversification concepts is you hear individuals say, well, when the markets go down, everything goes down. And I think that's a valid point. Everything goes down. Everything gets affected by a shock or a moment of crisis. Yeah, but I think that's more in the short term. I mean, in the first two, three months, then after that, you see differences, right? Well, one of the things that was interesting is, and this is the next report we're going to allude to with Cliff Asnes, is he says that any kind of diversification away from your home country doesn't necessarily protect you when there's a moment of crisis. What it does is it protects you from long periods of underperformance. You could be stuck in an asset class that has a lost decade. And people are very quick to say, well, the only place to invest is the US, because look at the great returns. Investors have a very short memory, because in 2010, which is only 13 years ago, you couldn't find a lot of people that wanted to invest in the US market. We just finished a credit crisis. The US market had spent 10 years in the lost decade. You couldn't find anybody who was bullish on the US. And then obviously, they just went through one of the best 13-year bull markets we've seen in a long term. So now we're here today. How do you think about the future? This gets back to making sure you invest globally. That report was interesting because it pretty much said that in the last 30 years, the stock market in the US has done better than international markets, but international companies have been as good and as profitable as the US companies. They just haven't been loved, right? So that was interesting. Yeah, the AQR report highlighted essentially, this is a report written primarily to US investors. Do not give up on international investing. This is not the time to do that because international stocks are well-valued. In other words, they're not super expensive. U.S. stocks are super expensive, and there's a segment of U.S. stocks that are expensive, making the entire market look more expensive. But there are lots of areas of the U.S. market that are reasonable. The point of that paper was that when they looked in the last 20 years, the vast amount of extra return that U.S. stocks got relative to international stocks came from multiple expansion. In other words, investors loving those securities more and bidding up their prices as opposed to better profits. They conclude there's still lots of profits that these international companies are generating. You're able to get them at better prices. And that's how you generate good future returns. So it was just another report that really, really supported the idea of make sure you build international and global portfolios. It makes me think about our portfolios. We're diversified. Valuations look very attractive. For us to get an extra level of earnings or return, it's cheaper than to get, let's say, a top five company in the S&P 500. So at the end of the day, it's how much you're paying for that extra level of growth, extra level of revenue. And when we think about that in our portfolios relative to the market, we're looking quite well. And I think people in diversified portfolios shouldn't give up on that idea just yet. Well, they shouldn't give up on it ever. Exactly. Yeah. You may have the temptation of saying people chirping in your ear, oh, you know, these stocks are doing amazing and the tech stocks. It's a story as old as time, right? So I think my takeaway is that just stay the course. I know we sound like broken records, but 
Well, it is. It's perfect advice because at the end, like I'll go back to 2008, 2009, and everybody thought the only place to invest was Canada. If you look at the investment shows, it was all about resources. It was all about buying Canada, Australia, South Africa. Just three years ago, people would say there's never going to be higher interest rates ever, ever, ever. It's like, well, here we're three years in and now you get a car loan and it's a 9%. So we have to be able to adjust. And I think back to the future, how we build portfolios on an ongoing basis. I think our asset mix are really well diversified between Canada, US, international and emerging market. Have the right amount of fixed income, include global REITs as a very small portion, stay the course and rebalance. So Marcelo, it's been a great mid-year review. Any final takeaways? No, I think that's it. Diversification for me and then stick to your plan. I'm seeing it with my clients. I'm sure you see it as well, where when you're focusing on the plan and you're reiterating like the strong points of the person's plan and like staying the course, you remove the stress from the whole thing. You know, I just think about my situation with my mortgage. I was very stressed, but then I sit down and I start doing the planning and revise my plan, how it relates to the long term. It reduces the stress. And I see that with clients when we're talking about why am I not getting those extra returns in the market? Wait, you know what? Let's just go back to the plan. How are you doing? What your level of spending will be in retirement? Are you going to be okay? I think that whole element of planning removes the stress of having to deal with this stuff day to day. I agree with you 100%. The only thing I'll add is it's not even investment related. I sometimes find myself in the last few weeks reflecting and saying, you know, it was two years ago that we were all stuck in our homes. I personally, I'm back in a gym. My wife and I are traveling. You're not in that same moment of anxiety of society wasn't there. So we feel like that's gone and that's sort of behind us. Sure, there's things to worry about. Now where everybody's worried about other things. And so I like to sort of try to remind myself to keep perspective. I mean, things are good live within your means, keep diversified portfolios, have the plan, and things will work out. Work hard, a little bit less investment oriented, but I can't help thinking of where we all were two years ago and how much better a spot we are. It's true. So Marcel, thank you so much for a really informative mid-year review. And to our listeners and clients, thank you for tuning in and we will see you at the next show. See you next time. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.